Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people and books that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a critical point of development, they create the new form and structure which becomes the butterfly. My guest today is my old and dear friend Satish Kumar, who was the editor-in-chief of Resurgence, now with The Ecologist magazine, for 43 years, a record 43 years, and was the founder of Schumacher College in Dartington 30 years ago. At the age of nine, Satish renounced the world and joined the Brotherhood of Jain monks. And then at 18, he left this monastic order and became a campaigner, working to turn Gandhi's vision of a peaceful world into reality. He undertook an 8,000 mile peace pilgrimage, walking without any money, to deliver packets of peace tea to the leaders of the four nuclear powers. And maybe he'll tell us that story. Satish is the author of a number of books, including his most recent one, Pilgrimage for Peace, which describes this remarkable pilgrimage. His autobiography, No Destination, first published by Green Books as far back as 1978, has sold over 50,000 copies. Well, warm welcome, um, Satish, to Imaginal Inspirations. And tell us, first of all, about a, a shaping moment in your life involving your choice of work and your path. The shaping moment of my life was when I was 18 years old and I was a monk. And I read a book by Mahatma Gandhi. Actually, it was his autobiography. And in this book, he says that how many people can become a monk? Only few. Spirituality should not be an exclusive um, domain for the monks in a monastic order. Spirituality should be available to everyone in the world. And therefore, you don't have to forsake the world to practice spirituality. You have to live in the world and practice spirituality. When I read that book, that you, know, you can say was a kind of turning point in my life. And I decided that now I have to practice spirituality in the world and not in a monastic order. But once you are a monk, a Jain monk, you are a monk for life. And so it is not easy to get out of the monastic order. And so one night after midnight, I had to run away from the monastic order to join a Gandhian ashram, a community. And that's what I did. So that was one of the biggest uh, and a more kind, you can say challenging and, and a kind of scary uh, day of my life, but that informed the rest of my life. And now for the past, almost you can say 70, 60 years, 60 to 70 years, I have been working and living in the world and practicing spirituality, but doing normal things, everyday things. So I would say that was the turning point in my life. Wonderful and very powerful inspiration, Satish, thank you. And I think my next question about influential mentors or teachers and, and the advice that they gave, I think takes us probably to Vinoba Bhavi, but, but maybe I'm wrong. No, you are right. It does take to Vinoba Bhavi, because he was my teacher. Because by the time I left monastic order, Mahatma Gandhi was 
assassinated. He was no longer in the world. And so the next best person was Vinoba Bhave, who was Gandhi's all, almost a spiritual successor. And so I met Vinoba Bhave first time in the state of Kerala in South India. And from that very day, he became my teacher. And one thing he said, that read my book. You read Mahatma Gandhi's autobiography. That was a good turning point for you. But now read my book called Talks on the Gita. And, and he talked about it. And he said, one of the points uh, in Bhagavad Gita is you live in the world, you act, but without desiring the results and the outcome of your, of your action. Act without the desire for the fruit of your action. Action itself is the reward and it has intrinsic value. So if you can act as an offering, act like a gift to the world, because you have received so much from the world, from our ancestors, from our teachers, religion, philosophy, art, culture, architecture, and food, body, house, everything you have received from our ancestors. Now, only thing you can do is to give back as a gift to yourself, to your fellow human beings, to the world, and to the future generations. So don't expect any results of your action for yourself. That was the teaching of Vinoba Bhave. And I read that Bhagavad Gita and his book talks on the Gita, and that became uh, a life uh, companion in, for me. Uh, and the Bhagavad Gita, then I read Bhagavad Gita by many other translators, uh, even commentary by Mahatma Gandhi and commentary by Sri Aurobindo and commentary by Dr. Alhakrishnan and many others. Um, so that Bhagavad Gita and acting without the desire for the results of your action became one of the key point uh, in my life. And that I think is a, a foundation for spiritual consciousness. Absolutely. And, and I think what in, at a time when there are so many ideas circulating and so many books coming out, it's very important, I think, to be able to return to these essential points of spirituality, you know, spirituality in the world, that not uh, hanging on to the holding on to the fruits of actions, uh, as recommended by the Bhagavad Gita. Otherwise, one gets lost in all the detail and, and you lose your compass. Yes, absolutely. Because when you are living in the world, there are two ways to live in the world. One is a kind of with spiritual consciousness and the other way is in a kind of worldly consciousness. So the spiritual consciousness is depending on the intention behind your work. So if you work for money or profit or prestige or power or control or status or award or reward, then it is a kind of worldly intention. But if you work with a spiritual intention, spiritual consciousness, that means that you are working out of love. You are working as a gift to the world. Uh, you are not possessor of your work. You say, the work is coming through me. I'm a channel of my work. And it is a service to the world. And so when you have that intention and, and not trying to gain something for yourself, it's a kind of selflessness in your motivation. And so that you become an activist, but a spiritual activist. So that is the main difference between uh, spiritual consciousness and the worldly consciousness. So you can be in the world. The world is a spiritual place. 
uh, the trees uh, and the, the mountains and the animals and the birds and the oceans and humans, they're all gifts from the universe. And we live with all living beings as a gift and celebrate life. And in that celebration is a spiritual consciousness. You are not trying to gain something for yourself. You are just celebrating life. Like flowers bloom as a celebration of the universe. Like birds fly as a celebration of the universe. They don't want anything in return. In the same way, humans act as a celebration of the earth. And that's the spiritual consciousness uh, as described in the Bhagavad Gita. Yes, and I think this is also what Jesus meant by being in the world, but not of it. Uh, coming now, Satish, to uh, the advice uh, in relation to your pilgrimage, which we're, I'm looking forward to hearing a bit more about, as described in your book, Pilgrimage for Peace. Um, I think that Vinoba Bhavi gave you some specific advice um, about how to go about the pilgrimage. That's Tell right. How, how that First of all, he said that the, go in the world not as a tourist, but as a pilgrim. Because I wanted to go to Moscow, Paris, London, Washington. These four nuclear capitals of the world at that time. And I wanted to walk to Moscow, Paris, London, Washington. So Vinoba said, I'm delighted. Walking is the best way to be a pilgrim. But what is the difference between a pilgrim and a tourist? A pilgrim is the one who accepts the world and celebrates the world as the world is. A tourist expects something from the world, expects good food, good accommodation, good reception, uh, good appreciation. So, so I would advise you to go as a pilgrim, drop all your expectations, expect nothing, and accept the world as it is. You will meet Muslims, Christians, communists, capitalist, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, accept everybody as they are. You will meet mountains, forests, deserts, snow, rain, everything will come to you. Accept it as it comes. Do not expect good weather or everything smooth and everything hunky-dory. Don't expect anything. So drop your expectation and have only acceptance in your life and that will be the best way to go. And in order to do that, because you are going for peace in the world, how do you show that you are at peace within yourself? And he said that wars come from fear and peace comes from trust. So you have to trust in your heart and trust the world. And how do you show that you trust? You go without any money in your pocket. So I said, Vinoba, a little bit of money just to make a telephone call or just have a cup of tea or write a postcard to you. He said, no, not a penny. Go without any money at all, whatsoever, not a penny. Because then you are being a pilgrim, you trust the world, you accept the world as it is, and, and if difficulties come, they will make you stronger. If difficulties come, problems come, then you will have your imagination and your creativity and your consciousness and your courage and your trust to use those qualities to deal any problems you face. So that was his advice mainly. And so I went around the world for through 15 countries, 8,000 miles, two and a half years, and I survived. Well, it's an incredible book, um, Satish, and the way you vividly describe your 
your experiences. Uh, what what did you what did you feel at the time that you most value that you learned from the pilgrimage? I mean, I was depending on the hospitality of the strangers, and what I learned most uh, deeply and most profoundly was that ultimately the entire earth is my home, and ultimately the whole cosmos is my country. And this idea that I'm an Indian, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Jain, I'm this, I'm that, these are only shorthand, convenient um, kind of way of describing yourself. But ultimately, I am a member of the human community and a, and, and a member of the earth community and a member of the cosmic community. So that was the most profound uh, experience uh, that I learned. Whole cosmos is my country. Whole earth is my home and love is my religion. And then if I go as an Indian, I meet Pakistani. If I go as a human being, I meet human beings. If I go as a Hindu, I meet a Muslim. But if I go as a human being, I meet human beings. So rising and transcending all those um, narrow uh, thinking and putting yourself in a box, a box of religion, a box of nationality, a box of race, a box of color, then you are isolating yourself. So I decided to break out of all those boxes and have a sense of belonging to whole cosmos and whole humanity. And wherever I am, I am at home. That's very much the vision, this deep and, and profound and broad vision that the whole of humanity needs to adopt. Um, Satish, uh, tell us a bit about the Peace Tea incident. Yes, that was one of the most beautiful uh, encounter that I had in my whole two and a half years of journey. I was walking through Georgia, south of Russia, near the Black Sea. And, and the Black Sea area is very beautiful for growing wine and tea. So I was going through vineyards and tea gardens. And then I came to a tea factory. And in front of the tea factory, there were two women standing in the sun, having a lunch break and enjoying the sunshine. And I gave them my leaflets, in which I described that I am with my friend. We are walking from India without money for peace. And the woman was very intrigued. She said, you have come all the way from India without money then how do you eat? Because to eat, you need to have money. I said, no, people offer us food without money. Oh, so she thought for a minute and then she said, are you hungry? Now it's at lunchtime. We have a very nice canteen in our tea factory. Would you like to have some tea? Would you like to have some bread? I said, yes, please. Anytime is tea time. We will be delighted to have your hospitality. So we went in the tea factory. And we sat in the uh, canteen of the tea factory. And as we were drinking tea and having conversation, suddenly this woman, a young woman, a young mother, she had a brainwave. She left the room and I said, what have I done? Have I said something wrong? Why is she leaving in the middle of the conversation? She left the room and came back in about five minutes or three minutes and said, I want to give you these four packets of tea. I said, why? She said, they are not for you. For whom are they? She said, I would like you to be my messenger. 
and give one packet of tea to our premier in the Kremlin. The second packet of tea to the president of France. The third packet of tea to the prime minister of England or UK. And the fourth packet of tea to the president of the United States of America in the White House. And please give them a message from me. Say to them that if you ever get a mad thought of pressing the nuclear button, please stop for a moment and have a fresh cup of tea. And this will give you a moment, a chance, an opportunity to think about your action. Your bomb will not only kill your enemies, your bombs will kill all human beings and animals and forests and, and water and the lakes and the rivers. Everything will be contaminated. So please don't use the bomb. This is not a weapon to be used. That was her message. And I was so inspired, so touched. I said to my friend that now we have a mission. Our mission is to de deliver this packet of peace tea to the four capitalists of the world and take this message coming from a wonderful young mother, uh, woman, uh, this message. So this is what we did. We delivered the packet of peace tea in the Kremlin and in the White House. And we met the leaders of the Soviet Union and, and the United States of America. And they laughed and they enjoyed. And I'm glad to say that nuclear weapons have not been used. And the tea is still sitting there, maybe. You don't know. Uh, but I'm delighted. That was the high point of my whole journey around the world. Very relevant still, um, Satish. But I think you had a few problems when you were trying to deliver the tea to, to the Elysee in Paris. That's true. Only place, I mean, I got received in the, in the Kremlin, in the White House, in 10 Downing Street, but not in the Palais Elysee. Because uh, President de Gaulle said that I'm not interested in this nuclear um, discussion and, and I don't want to hear anything. And so he refused to receive us. And so we went to demonstrate in front of Palais Elysee. And, and it is forbidden to demonstrate in front of Palais Elysee. And so we were arrested and were put in jail. And we were in jail for three days. And then the police chief came to us and said, either we have to deport you back to India or you give your packet of PST to me. And I will see if I can deliver that on your behalf to uh, Palais Elysee and to President de Gaulle or his, his entourage or his uh, secretaries. So we said, we don't want to go back to India because we don't want to stop our walk uh, to London and to Washington. And so we compromised and we gave that packet of PST to the chief of the police of Paris. And then hopefully, fingers crossed, he had delivered uh, or did deliver that packet of PST to Palais Elysee. That was uh, one incident where we were not successful. But otherwise, in three places, in three capitals, we were able to deliver packet of PSTs. And that's a pretty good, pretty good record. Uh, and I just want to come on to a little bit to the whole theme of nonviolence because and Christianity, because one of the things that struck me in reading your book was the reception you got from a priest who turned you away uh, and wouldn't give you any accommodation. And then another priest around the same time who said, don't criticize Christianity, criticize Christians for not living up to Christianity. That's right. That's right. Now, the thing is that uh, this is very true of most religions. The preaching or the teachings of religions, particularly Christianity, is teaching of love. 
and accepting everybody as they are and who they are without any judgment, without any qualification. You accept everybody and love unconditionally. This unconditional, unlimited love is the key of Christian teachings. But Christian uh, communities, Christian nations have been at loggerhead with each other and have been at war, the First World War, the Second World War, the war between France and Germany, the war between Britain and, and France, and, and the wars and wars and wars. So this priest said to me that don't judge Christianity. The teaching of Christianity is universal and applicable to every human being, and we must live up to it. It's the Christians who have failed. And I think that is a very true. If you take the same thing about Islam and the same thing about Hinduism, Islam is teaching about peace and, and harmony and respect for everybody. But the, the, um, the Muslims don't always practice what Islam teaches. In the same way, Hindus are the same thing. You can see in India what is going on at the moment. A Hindu accepts everybody as human beings and no discrimination. Uh, and yet uh, there are uh, sectarian views of Hinduism. And Buddhism, the same thing. If you say Sri Lanka or Burma or many countries, you can see uh, how Buddhists behave. So this is not only a problem with Christians. The Christians, the Muslims, the Hindus, the Buddhists, they all behave without considering the true teachings of their religions. And so this is a problem which I think was highlighted by this priest uh, who to told me, don't judge uh, Christianity judge Christians if they are practicing their values. I think he made a very good point, and I, I, I'm glad you extended your, your reply to other religions. And Satish, tell us about uh, your meeting with Bertrand Russell, who I think also helped inspire pilgrimage. Yes, the seed of the idea of making this pilgrimage for peace came from Bertrand Russell. At age 90, he was protesting against the nuclear weapons. He went to the Ministry of Defense in London, in the White Hall. And he said, we will not move until the British government declares a ban on the bomb. And there were about 100 people with him. It was a committee of 100. And so he was disturbing the peace of Queen and the government. And so he was arrested. And he was fined, but he refused to pay the fine. And so he was sent to jail. So he was in jail for one week. And, and I was in India reading this news. And I said to myself that here is a man of 90 going to jail for peace in the world. What am I doing, young man, sitting here in Bangalore, drinking coffee in the coffee house? And so that was a, a moment which shook me, which inspired me, which, which, which uh, uh, took me to a different uh, level of thinking. And I said, if a man of 90 can go to jail for peace in the world, I must do something. And so I talked to my friend, E.P. Madden, I said, we must do something for peace and for nuclear weapons. So nuclear weapons are so lethal and disastrous. We have to do something. And so that's how I got inspired. So it's thanks to Bertrand Russell that I was inspired to go on this long walk um, to uh, Moscow, Paris, London, Washington. So when I arrived in England, I contacted Bertrand Russell and he 
cordially invited us to his house in Wales. And we went to see him and spent the uh, evening and night with him. And he was 92 by this time. And yet he was full of energy, full of enthusiasm and full of commitment to peace. And, and we talked about peace as a way of life uh, or peace only in the absence of war. And so it was a very good discussion uh, between uh, Bertrand Russell and myself. And in the end, he also helped us to get two tickets uh, across the Atlantic. Because he said, you came from India to England without any money, because you could, but there's no ocean, so you could walk, but you can't walk on water. So how can I help you? And so he asked his PA uh, to arrange uh, two tickets in Queen Mary to sail across uh, the Atlantic and go to New York. And so Martin Russell was very helpful, very enthusiastic, and blessed us uh, for our walk. Yes, I got great admiration for that, that kind of work he did. And, and he, he was also a conscientious objector in, in World War I and went to prison for a few days then, which was about 60 or 50 years before. Satish, you've mentioned the Bhagavad Gita and the autobiography of um, Gandhi. Is there any other book um, that's, that you'd like to mention at this point? That I would like to life? mention one more book, which is written by Martin Luther King. Another great inspiration for me was Martin Luther King. And I had a great privilege of meeting Martin Luther King when I was uh, in the United States. Uh, just after his great speech of I Have a Dream in Washington, uh, I wrote to him and I said, you have a great dream. We all have a wonderful dream, but I have a small dream and my dream is to meet you. And so he uh, was delighted and he wrote back and he invited us. And so we went to see him and we had a wonderful discussion. He was an embodiment of peace. He was an embodiment of love. I have not met anyone who has such a radical view about racism and such justice now. Justice delayed is justice denied. Such a radical man and yet totally at peace, totally full of love, no hatred to anyone. And then at the end of our uh, discussion, he gave me autographed book, his own book called Stride Toward Freedom. And so I was delighted to receive it. And when I came back to India, I said that not many people in India know about the work and the ideas and the values and the vision of Martin Luther King. So I must translate this book in Hindi. And so immediately after my return to India, I translated that book, Stride Toward Freedom, into Hindi and published in Hindi. And that was my first book in a way. Uh, and so that's another book I would say, although it was published long ago, I still very, very important book, Stride Toward Freedom. And if any of your listeners can read that book, they will know what Martin Luther King stood for and how radical and yet how loving he was. He was one of the extraordinary men that I met in my life. Very, very interesting. And I actually haven't read that book. Then another person who I think influenced you um, in a slightly later stage was, was Fritz Schumacher. Um, bringing, bringing you to uh, John Patworth, bringing you to resurgence. Maybe you could say a little bit about, about Fritz Schumacher. Yes, absolutely. Fritz Schumacher was another uh, great um, economist. And he went to Burma, now Myanmar, and he encountered Buddhism there. And he wrote a very great essay called Buddhist Economics. 
And that essay truly touched me. And, and, and when I met E.F. Schumacher, I said to him that, um, how did you manage to connect Buddhism and, and economics? And he said, you know, Buddhism represents spiritual values, ethical values. Um, and without ethical and spiritual values, any system, be it economics or any other um, discipline, is not enough. In order to grow food from the soil, you need soil and water together. So economics without spiritual values is like soil without water. You cannot grow anything properly. And so he said, so I was very impressed with his um, idea. And he was the first economist in the Western world who connected spirituality with economics. That was most inspiring. And then, of course, his book I read, Small is Beautiful. I think that's one of the most um, uh, relevant books uh, for our time. It really describes a, a kind of environmental and ecological worldview. Uh, how our economics, politics, development, progress, industry, um, work, all the things, how they can be more ecologically profound and more uh, nature-centered and how we can live in harmony with the natural world rather than conquering nature, exploiting nature, subjugating nature. We have to learn uh, economy of nature and learn how to live in harmony with nature. That was his message in Small is Beautiful book. So Buddhist economics uh, is a chapter in that book now. But before the book was published, the essay was written and published in Resurgence magazine, of which I became the editor. Yes, it's an extraordinary influence. I think all of this is reverberating in our time with your work, with Bandana Shiva's work, the whole um, regeneration revolution, you might say, which is absolutely essential you know, for a possible future, I think. Satish, is there anything else, any other experience you'd like to mention at this point? Because I, I, I've uh, gone off my script slightly, but because I think this is- No, no, I would to... like to say that just a few weeks ago, I had a privilege of being at the Vatican. And I spoke in the presence of Pope Francis, who is one of the extraordinary men in our time. He's very humble, he's very radical. Uh, he is, reminds me of Martin King or E.F. Schumacher or Bertrand Russell or Vinoba Bhave or any of those uh, figures who have influenced me in my life. I think Pope Francis is one of them. And when I was invited to speak by Pope Francis, uh, in the audience, uh, I said that what we need to do is like the doctors take Hippocratic oath before they begin their practice. The Hippocratic oath should not be only for the doctors. Hippocratic oath should be taken by everyone who begins to work, whether you are an economist, whether you are a politician, whether you are a business leader, whether you are a farmer, whatever, whoever you are, before you begin your life's work, take Hippocratic oath and say, I will do anything and everything, but one thing I will not do, I will do no harm. First, do no harm. That is the one universal principle of nonviolence that should be taken by everybody. That should be a minimum condition for all human activity. First, do no harm. And so all our students, when they leave the universities, before they get the job, they must take this oath, Hippocratic oath. And, and, and if we do no harm to ourselves, do no harm to other people, do no harm to nature. 
If we can do that, then there'll be no global warming, there'll be no climate change, there'll be no exploitation, there'll be no war, there'll be no conflict. All the problems we have today are because we do harm to each other. Waste is harming nature. Pollution is harming nature. Emission of carbon dioxide uh, in the atmosphere and green gases is a harm to the environment and the biosphere. If we can stop doing harm to nature, to people and to ourselves, then we can have a beautiful society, a peaceful society. So this Hippocratic oath for everyone was my plea at the Vatican in front of Pope Francis. And after my talk, Pope Francis came to me and said, you said good thing, thank you. He thanked me. I was privileged and honored and delighted that I could meet Pope Francis and say a few words in his presence. Thank you, Satish. I think what's so powerful about that is that you, you started from a very simple idea, namely the Hippocratic Oath, and then you can explicate that and, and show how it applies across the board and, and to every situation, which I think is very, very powerful. And then just coming towards the end now, um, do you have a proverb you live by or a particular favourite quotation? One proverb or quotation I live by is by Ananda Kumara Swami. He was a Silanese um, art historian, and then he lived in India, and then he lived in America, and he became the curator of the, uh, the, the modern art uh, in Boston. Uh, and so he said one thing, which has stayed in my life uh, forever, and I live by it. He said, an artist is not a special kind of person, but every person is a special kind of artist. And I said, wow, what a wonderful ideal. What makes an art art? When you combine love in your heart, imagination in your consciousness, and creativity in your actual implementation, whatever you do, it becomes work of art. Cooking becomes work of art. Gardening becomes work of art. Speaking becomes work of art. Writing, dancing, poetry, painting, architecture, whatever you do, if you do it with love, if you do it with imagination, if you do it with creativity, and not just copying, and not just to make money or make profit, and just to pay the bills, you have to earn money, so you do everything for money. If you do things for money, then you are not an artist. But if you do it with love and creativity and imagination, then whatever you do, it becomes a work of art. That was... Ananda Kumara Swami's teachings. And that one sentence has stayed with me forever. An artist is not a special kind of person, but every person is a special kind of artist. That's a wonderful message for our listeners. And finally, Satish, is there any advice you give to your younger self from your current vantage point? My younger self, I advise, is that you have lived your life and taken risks. And do not be afraid of taking risk. To live is to risk. You cannot live a good life without taking some risks. So that's the only advice I can give is to live is to risk. And therefore do not be worried or afraid or shy of taking risk in your life. Well, I think that's exactly what you've done in your life. You've, you've pushed the boat out taken risks, been adventurous, 
And in the process, you have distilled an extraordinary amount of wisdom, Satish, which I'm delighted you've been able to share with us on this Imaginal Inspirations podcast. It has been my pleasure, David. Thank you so much.